Well, let's read the passage that Craig is going to preach from later on. So please turn to 1 Peter once again, and we're looking forward uh, to the next installment in this series, following in his steps. Uh, and there's no more important thing that we can apply our lives to than following the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 6 through to 9. First Peter 1, verse 6. And God's word says, In this you rejoice, although now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. It's great to see you all this morning. A very warm welcome. Thank you to Simon and everyone else who has led us so far. I think the Bible class are with us again today. We're thrilled to have you young people as you join us this morning. Uh, You may know, uh, those of you who are in the Bible class, you may know uh, about Copernicus. I don't think this is going to advance, is it? Okay. Thank you, Steph. So you may know about this guy, Copernicus, Nicholas Copernicus. He's famous for working out not that everything else in the universe circulated around the earth, but that everything circulates around the sun. And his discovery sometime in early 1540s became revolutionary. It changed science. It changed the way that we see the world. And it was realized that until then, we had not seen things as they really are. Now, we give time on Sundays to get together, to be together, to meet in the presence of the Lord, in the presence of one another, to sing his praise, to hear his word now, to study it together for half an hour or so. And we do that because we constantly need a similar kind of Copernican revolution. That's what it was called. His discovery was called the Copernican revolution. It was massive for understanding reality. And we need something similar all the time as we keep, don't know about you, but I have to keep rediscovering that I am not at the center of the universe. That's always a shock to me, but I have to keep discovering it. And day by day, and especially Sunday by Sunday with the Lord's people, that is my experience. I discover that afresh. Life does not work with me at its center. Life does not work with us at his center. It is designed to work with our almighty God at the center. And we need that discovery as we come back to 1 Peter again this morning. Because today, Peter cracks open what must be one of the greatest paradoxes in the Christian life. In this section that's just been read for us, he begins talking about joyful grief. Joyful grief as the normal Christian experience. And if that's not a paradox, I don't know what is. Have a look at verse 
6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And Peter isn't talking about there being seasons of rejoicing and seasons of grief in our lives. He's talking about both experiences simultaneously being the steady state of Christian living. We'll see that. Now, I don't know what you make of that. Can there be a steady state of joy in the Lord while we're going through significant suffering? That's where Peter takes us in this letter. And he's not a maverick. He's not the only one. He is absolutely consistent with the whole of biblical revelation on this issue. Will we see this reality? I mean, think about it. People have been watching the sun rising and setting on the earth since the dawn of time. It looked like, it still looks like, the sun was moving round the earth. Imagine how bizarre Copernicus's idea was when it was first advanced. When he first said, no, 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 hang on. The sun is not going round us, we're going round it. We're not the center, it is the center. And similarly, what Peter tells us here about reality seems utterly counterintuitive. Friends, there is a sense in which it is easier to believe that the Lord Jesus bodily rose from the dead, which he did and which we do. Easier to believe that than to believe that, here's the thing, the darkest aspects of our lives are ultimately from the hand of our loving Heavenly Father and essential for our eternal good. That is a very tough thing to believe. That's not the way life looks and feels. We think that someone who loves us prevents us feeling pain. They don't permit us to feel pain. So what can Peter be telling us here? What What he's telling us is revolutionary. It can only be embraced by faith. I mean, it's humanly impossible to take this on board this morning and, and make your peace with it and, and build your life on it. We, we can't embrace this without the gift of faith. And we can't even generate the faith that's required to embrace this. But the Lord is able. He is able to grant us to, 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 to have over this next half hour or so that faith that we need, that we will hear his word this morning by faith and be deeply conscious of him authenticating to us his vast love, even as we talk about how he lifts the cordon and allows suffering into our lives. We see his pure love. It's shown in his power to guard us, verse 5, and it's shown in his purposes to grieve us, verse 6. Can we hold these two things together? I'm acutely aware of my personal inability to meet all the needs of all the minds and hearts who engage with this this morning. But the Lord has all of that and all of us in his mind. So let's take a moment now to ask afresh for that Copernican revolution that puts the reality of our God and Savior at the very center of our life's experience so that by his grace, even this morning, we may begin to see life and death and joy and pain as they actually are. Will you join with me just in a further moment of prayer? Lord Jesus, you're the one who said to a group of adults that unless they changed and became like little children, they would not see your kingdom. And we do not come naturally with that childlike 
mentality. We come to this matter now as experienced people. We come as wounded people, grieving, confused people. We come as those who've already developed ways of coping with pain, ways of thinking about you, our God of love, and us in a world of pain. And the pain breaks over us even as we begin to think about this this morning. So we don't come to this subject empty. We come full of thoughts, some of which are not true of you and some of which are not true of us. We ask that you will have mercy on us now. Will you do the miracle so that with delightful, childlike, unsophisticated, but deeply reasoned joy, we will see your glorious kingdom in the midst of some of the darkest pain of our lives. Only you can do this, Lord, this morning. So help us all now in the name of your Son, your suffering servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as an outline for this section, I want to give you a circular diagram that starts and ends with the deepest imaginable joy because that's how the passage starts and finishes. Verse 6, in this you rejoice Verse 8, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So we start with joy and we're then going to head round via grief back to joy. Which is not what you would expect in a, in a section that's to do with suffering. That's very interesting. But that's why this kind of Copernican revolution personally needs to take place for us. And, you know, the degree to which we can experience the joy of verse 6 and the joy of verses 8 to 9 via and alongside the pain of verse 7 is the degree to which that revolution has taken place in our understanding. So you keep praying, asking the Lord for the faith to embrace this, and I'll keep pre preaching, and I'm praying as I'm preaching that the Lord will give us and help me. So the first thing, let's go to the top of our circle there, the joy of the Christian life. Here's the connection between what we saw last week and what we look at today. In this, you greatly rejoice. And what is he referring to? He's referring back to, do you remember last week, Peter's burst of praise, verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Peter is describing a recognizable reaction in the life of a Christian believer. And this is the first sign that a believer's life is being lived according to the biblical perspective of reality. The first sign is that we actually rejoice in what God has already done for us and in what he will do for us throughout all eternity. In this you rejoice, says Peter. And those who read it said, yeah, we do. That's true. That's, that's an authentic, spirit-filled Christian's reaction to the wonder of what God has done. The opposite of this is living only for now. You see, if we live only for the moment, we will be very confused people. We will not be thankful. We'll not be thrilled at what the Lord has done for us. If we gauge the blessings 
of the Christian life by our experience in this world, we will conclude that we've had a bad deal. We will conclude that either God does not love us, or if he loves us, he's, he's got no power to deal with the things that are causing us massive pain. Someone has said that 99% of the blessings of the Christian life are in the future. I don't know the exact percentages, but as a rule of thumb, that is bang on. And that's what Peter did for these people. He showed them what God had done in eternity past in electing them and redeeming them by the bloodshed of Christ and transforming them by the work of the Holy Spirit and then the, 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 the wonders of verses 3 to 5 that put, take us from here to eternity. And we do need that perspective. That's what, that's what is the, the driver of the joy. This is going to have to make sense as we go to the second thing. From the joy of the Christian life to the grief of the Christian life. And I'll take most of our time on this. Both the ESV and the NIV use the word grief. And it's a good word because Peter is talking about the things that come into our lives that make us sick and sorrowful and deeply distressed. And here again, Peter is both describing the normal Christian life and he's explaining the normal Christian life. God's word does not turn a blind eye to the sufferings of this life. So notice with me the range of these griefs. Have a look there, verse 6 again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Now we've taken time to set this letter in its context. The, the context is the experience of elect exiles. Those who, remember the phrase, were scattered and scorned. And when we get into chapter 2, we're going to see Peter deal specifically with the griefs that arise in the Christian life from that status. From the fact that we are exiles, that we don't actually belong here and that we are rejects in this world. But I want us to know this morning that that's not the only kind of suffering that Peter is addressing. And that's important to know because in our setting towards the end of 2023, in this part of the world, the greatest suffering that we experience doesn't normally arise as a result of the reaction of the world against us. There are plenty of believers in the world today for whom the greatest suffering does come from the reaction of the world against them. Peter's readers were getting to be like that. But that's not our experience yet. And I'm glad that Peter is giving us truth that helps us navigate all suffering, both what is unique to Christians in this world and what is common to everyone. So Peter has in mind, as he speaks here about various trials, every pain in life that comes because of the curse of sin on this planet. Now, don't take that to mean that all personal suffering is directly correlated to personal sin. It's not. Jesus made that clear. But all suffering is as a result of the fall of the human race. So what is Peter talking about here? He's talking about cancer. He's talking about degenerative illnesses that are inherited. He's talking about depression. He's talking about Alzheimer's. He's talking about battling open, openly with a wasting disease or battling in secret with your sexuality. He's talking about relational trauma. 
He's talking about physical trauma as you slip on the ice and in seconds the remainder of your life is affected by the injury. He's talking about car accidents, sports injuries, medical malpractice, legal injustice. He's talking about being physically and or sexually brutalized and powerless to defend yourself. He's talking about being falsely accused and misunderstood. He's talking about having your teeth kicked in physically or having your teeth kicked in emotionally. And when it happens emotionally, nobody sees it. Nobody knows that the comment made just flattened you. Nobody knows that the hope crushed, changed you as a person. He's talking about that. He's talking about what it means to lose your job, to lose your home, to lose your loved one. Everything that causes sorrow and distress. That is an incomplete list. But the point is the various trials he writes about cover all suffering. And part of the variety of trials is the, is the feeling that we get that there's a, there is an inequity in the suffering. You might get to the end of this section today and see Peter's point, but still be puzzled because not only has your suffering been life-changing, and perhaps your suffering is lifelong, but in addition to the fact of your suffering, there is the horrible feeling that it is almost unique, and therefore it is so isolating. Because so, people, so few people can identify with what you're going through. You may look around the church family and find that you'd be willing to swap trials with almost anybody else insofar as you're able to work out what other trials people are going through. And you may say, I get this thing that trials come into our lives. I get that God uses them to revive. But why is it, why is it so unequal? Not everybody's going through what I've gone through. Not everybody's had the depths of pain and loss that I've experienced. I take that to be another factor in the variety of experiences that grieve us. As we feel grief upon grief. And as Peter wrote to these little assemblies of believers in what is now Turkey, they were suffering for their faith, but they were also dealing with all the other painful realities of life. And Peter is, is covering that range of griefs. And in doing so, he's, he's mirroring what Paul did in 2 Thessalonians 1. This is just a quick cross-reference. Verse 4, 2 Thessalonians 1, where Paul says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith. And then notice two categories. In all your persecutions, now the persecution is suffering that arises because you're a Christian in a world that hates Jesus. But it's not just your persecutions, in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. Do you see both categories of suffering? It's the full range that Peter is dealing with too. So can we see the range of these trials and can we now see the reason for these griefs? we begin to see that there are reasons behind the full range of trials, even from verse 6 itself. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, there's a bomb, 
if necessary, what's going on here, you've been grieved by, grieved by various trials. So, as we try to align our understanding with biblical reality, this Copernican revolution begins to happen. We find that Peter is not primarily writing to commiserate with his readers in their suffering. His message that these things is not that these things are undesirable and inexplicable, but someday they'll all be behind us. I've heard people talk like that. That's not the direction the New Testament comes from. No, Peter has the boldness as he writes with the authority of Christ. He has the boldness to say, we're talking here about necessity. And we see this even more clearly in chapter 3. We're going to get to this eventually. Hopefully in 2024, maybe later. But we are going to get to this. Chapter 3, verse 17. It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So when we talk about the necessity of these various trials, we see God standing behind that. A God who says, this is my will, this is my purpose, this is what I'm doing in your life. So there is a necessity about our griefs. They fall within the purposes of God's will. So another legitimate way to express the paradox we're looking at this morning, and I've already touched on this, is that we are both lovingly guarded, verse 5, and lovingly grieved, verse 6. We are those who, by God's power, are being guarded, verse 5, through salvation, through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And then here's the real thing. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now we get into why our griefs are necessary. What is Peter saying in verse 7? Well, in other words, if gold is considered precious, and it is, everybody still talks about the gold standard. If gold is considered precious, even though when refined it eventually perishes, how much more precious is saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which leads to imperishable, eternal glories with him forevermore? We saw that, didn't we, last week, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable. You see, right at the heart of this way of seeing joy in the midst of grief is a value system, brothers and sisters, that puts the eternal far ahead of the temporary. Your faith in the Lord Jesus is infinitely more precious than anything in this pan flash of a life. Because by that faith in Christ alone, we can live pain-free, worry-free, sadness-free, and glory forever. Now I go back, I go back and I say we don't naturally feel like that. We don't naturally think this way. We don't think that our faith is so precious that it's worth having it refined in the fires of deeply grieving trials. 
We know it's precious, but when, when we're in the midst of that kind of fire, we don't feel like that. We would much rather not go through it. We would rather just have our faith and it not be tested. And equally, a person who thinks like that won't get what we saw at the beginning of verse 6. They won't find themselves rejoicing in all that God has done for them in Christ. So they won't know the joy and they won't stand the grief. And of course, let's be real, this is the point at which many people walk away from the Christian faith. They, they read a verse like this and they're horrified because their faith, whatever they call their faith, doesn't mean that much to them. A calm, trouble-free life is much more precious than a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that is a living hope that guarantees the glories of eternity in his presence. But Peter knows that something deep resonates in the hearts of those who really do know the Lord, who marvel over and rejoice in what, has got, what God has already done for them and what God is doing in them. Because they've been born again to a living hope. Because they're living for the future. And they want to know that their faith is genuine and will stand. And Peter's word to them is that when these horrible trials come, some of the ghastly things that I've already mentioned this morning, when, when utterly appalling things happen, these things that threaten to take us away from the Lord, when we discover that they actually draw us closer to the Lord, then that's a sign of spiritual life. That's a sign of reality. That's the reason the trials have come. And Peter encourages us in a very unexpected way in this, in this verse 7. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when Simon read that to us this morning, or when I read it just now, you might expect, as I expected when I came first to look at this text, you might expect that the praise and the glory and the honor is directly for the Lord Jesus. And ultimately it is. But Peter is talking here about something else. If you've drifted off with your thoughts, come back to hear this. He's talking about how the refining and the strengthening of your faith through various trials that really humanly we would rather not have. He's talking about how these things, if they bring us closer to the Lord, will result in praise and glory and honor for you, brother and sister, for your faith when Jesus is revealed. We know that because of what Peter tells us about the elders in chapter 5. You don't have to turn to it just now. We will get to this in time. I think about 2029, if we're spared, we'll get to chapter 5. But chapter 5, verse 4, Peter's writing to the elders and he says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now we know that Jesus will receive the crown. We know that we will cast our crowns at his feet, but the only way you can do that is if you've got a crown in the first place. And chapter 5, verse 4, and chapter 1, verse 7, 
is talking about how when the Lord Jesus comes, a tested genuine faith will result in praise and glory and honor to the person who had that faith when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, there's a wrong way to hear this. I've been thinking about this all week. You could be so mangled by the tragedy or the travesty or the trauma or all three that has come into your life that what I'm talking about here sounds like the cruelest endurance test ever devised. And in all honesty, you would rather have your life back the way it was if you could rather than have this enormously painful thing that, is, that Peter is telling you can refine your faith and give you increasing confidence that what is ahead of you is going to be kept and you're going to be kept. And this is the proof because the things that would tear you from Jesus are actually getting you to fasten yourself to Jesus. We can be so deeply hurt, so mangled, that in all honesty, we would rather just say, can I roll that back? And that's why I said at the beginning that only the Lord can minister this to us this morning. Only the Holy Spirit, as I'm trying to unpack this, only He can minister this to the depths of our hearts, even this morning, to enable us to have the faith to embrace His purpose in our pain for our eternal good. But please remember two things. Please remember the time frame. In this verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. James tells us, doesn't he, that our lives are like the steam that comes out of the kettle. Now you see it, now you don't. In comparison to eternity, our whole lives are a little while. And you have a God who is reaching out to you today in your pain, and he wants to alleviate your pain forever. Remember I said at the beginning, we find it very puzzling that someone who loves us, we would normally expect them to want to prevent pain and they permit pain. What we're beginning to see is he permits pain now so that he can alleviate our pain forever. Remember the time factor and remember the cross factor. This Peter, whose letter we're reading, was also a preacher. And on the day of Pentecost, he got up and he gave it loudly in Jerusalem. And he said in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, this, uh, verse 23, this Jesus, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see the, do you see the paradox there as well? Who was responsible for the death of Jesus? Answer, lawless men out of bitter hatred. Who was responsible for the death of Jesus? Answer, without question, without being complicit in their evil, our loving God was responsible for the death of his son. It happened by the hands of lawless men who crucified and killed him. It happened by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
So remember the cross factor. God loves his people. He abominates the fallenness of our world. He abominates the sinfulness of the race that is the root cause of all suffering and pain. Yet he makes it crystal clear that as with the cross of his son, so his beloved people are grieved by various trials according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I was up early this morning working on this and a quotation popped into my head or half of a quotation and I was pretty sure it had come from my good friend Jonathan Prime who's known and, and loved by many of you here and I knew Johnny would be up so I sent him a text. I didn't know that he would have already have travelled from his home in Market Harbour to the outskirts of London and would be standing on a platform waiting in an underground train coming because he's preaching in, in London today but I asked him about the quote and he sent me about five superb quotes and then the one that I was looking for. But he gave me a better one. He gave me this. In a book called Be Still My Soul, which was compiled by Nancy Guthrie, talking about these issues that we're talking about this morning. Johnny Erickson Tada, the well-known Christian quadriplegic, wrote a chapter called God's Plan A. And in it, she quotes a guy called Steve Estes, who says this, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. That's an awesome distillation of the truth that we're looking at today. God's not relaxed about your pain. He's not unaffected by it. He's not saying, oh, well, it's sore for them, but I don't feel anything, but it'll be worth it in the end. He, he, he doesn't feel like that. Ours is a Savior who wept. Ours is a God who in Genesis 6, his heart was filled with pain when he saw the mess this world was in. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And when you begin to see this, we move to the final thing, which is the proof of the Christian life. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. What's Peter reaching for here in verse 8? What's he doing with this verse on the back of what he said in verses 6 and 7? Well, surely he's pointing us to the miracle that God is doing in our lives in the trials right now in this hall this morning. None of Peter's readers had seen Jesus in the way that Peter had. Peter was, as we'll see in chapter 5, a witness to his sufferings. None of his readers was. None of us has seen the Lord Jesus physically. And yet a miracle has happened. Though you have not seen him, you love him. We love him because he first loved us. And brothers and sisters, Peter's showing us here, here's the key to finding joy in grief. Here's the key to how you hold all this together. You see, Lord, help me to know that you're the God who permits what you hate to accomplish what you love. Lord, help me to know the vastness of your love for me and help me to love you. I can't see you. 
I can't see what you're doing. I can't understand. But although I don't see you, I love you. Although I don't see you now, I, I believe in you. It's a miracle. We can't see him. We, we still can't understand what he allows, why certain agonies come into our lives. But we believe in him. And at that point, when we discover that we do love him, when we discover that we do believe in him, that the trials are not taking us away from him, but are bringing us closer to him, that brings us back to the joy of the Christian life with which we began. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, though you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I'm going to stop there now because our time is gone and I don't want to go on a minute longer. We've got a very busy program today. We might pick up on this next week as we move on. But can we get that little diagram into our heads? The joy of the Christian life, the grief of the Christian life, the proof of the Christian life, back to the joy of the Christian life. Joy at what he's already done to bring us from death to life, to open our blinded eyes to know his salvation. Grief that comes to cause us to trust in him more and to refine us from self-reliance, from making heaven now. And as we cooperate with that, as we lean on him and love him, we find that there is the proof of reality in our lives. And what does that produce? Joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Let's pray. Father, would you free us now this morning from the misunderstanding that so easily can arise as we talk about these things and as we talk about your character. Would you free us from natural resentment and, and bitterness that so easily comes into our lives, so naturally comes into our lives because we feel horrible things have been permitted. Will you grant that what we've looked at today will be like a shaft of morning light breaking into the deepest darkness of our lives? Will you help us to stand with one another now in loving, prayerful support? May we know our gracious God, not just the truth of this passage, but the truth of your person, Lord. That though we do not see you, we love you because you first loved us. Grant these things for the glory of your name we pray. Amen.